Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, a calendar of local events, and news. My name is Brad Swift, and I'm the host of today's show. Our interview is with three representatives of the organization Community Resources for Science, also known as CRS. They are Relitsa Zakatanova, CRS Program Assistant, Professor Bob Bergman of the UC Berkeley Department of Chemistry, and Miriam Bowering, a graduate student in Professor Bergman's research group. Community Resources for Science is a nonprofit organization. The goal of CRS is to help teachers give elementary and middle school students more opportunities to do science, to ask questions, test ideas, get their hands on real science activities. Through these efforts, CRS hopes to inspire the next generation of thinkers, makers, problem solvers, and leaders. This interview is pre-recorded and edited. Today we have a group of three people from the Community Resources for Science talking with us about their program. And why don't you each introduce yourself, and then we'll get into some details about your organization. My name's Relitza. Uh, I'm the program assistant at Community Resources for Science. My name is Bob Bergman. I'm a professor of chemistry at UC Berkeley, and I helped to organize an outreach program, which was initially called Chemistry in the Classroom, and then became Community in the Classroom, and now is called BASIS, and it helps to organize graduate students to do presentations in the local schools. I'm Miriam Bowering. I'm a graduate student in chemistry at UC Berkeley, and I'm also a classroom volunteer. I bring groups of my coworkers into fifth grade classrooms to do science with them. Relissa, can you give us an overview of what CRS does? Community Resources for Science is an organization that was started by two parents who were involved with a lot of science in their children's schools, and they decided that there was not enough science being done. So they figured out a way to help individual teachers get the resources that they need, uh, be it snails from a local store or books that they need, um, or ways to organize field trips. And it evolved into bringing scientists into classrooms to do hands-on presentations as well. And it's grown from that. Uh, Yeah. I mean, now we're able to organize hundreds of volunteers that we have go into uh, over 280 classrooms this past year and get kids involved in doing actual science. And where is it that that you do this? What school districts? Uh, Yeah, we are primarily in Alameda County in the Berkeley and Oakland school districts uh, that we do the actual presentations because um, our volunteers can reach those areas most easily, those schools. But we go out and provide services to teachers in Castro Valley as well and some of the other West Contra Costa County schools. What's the grade range uh, that you try to impact? CRS, as an organization, has been supporting teachers K through 5 from its beginnings, and we've started expanding into middle schools. So mostly 6th grade, uh, because they still have one science 
teacher, but seventh and eighth, they kind of start to branch out into different subjects. However, we, we do still work with teachers in seventh and eighth grade, and we're very willing to provide them with the personal support on an individual basis that they might need, you know, requesting resources and things like that. We do go into middle schools and do science days where we have four or five lessons going on for different classrooms and they do you know one set in the morning and then they switch it around and do another set in the afternoon and for teachers to get involved uh, how did they do that is it free uh yes it is i think they can just visit the website which is www.crscience.org all the information they need is there so they can not only contact CRS to get scientists into their classrooms, but they can also look for other kinds of resources on the website there. How do you find volunteers? How do you go about recruiting? Uh, We actually recruited a lot more volunteers this past year than we have in the past, and we're really excited about that. And thanks to our campus coordinators, Leah and Kristen, we were able to really reach out to 20 of the departments on campus, and we have volunteers from 20 of, I think, what is there, 21 departments here at UC Berkeley, so we're really proud of that, and Bob has done a great job really getting the word out in the Department of Chemistry and the College of Chemistry. Yeah, I could say a little bit about how, what the history of that is. This really started almost accidentally. I was at a party, and one of the people from CRS was someone that my wife had gone to graduate school at UC Berkeley with. And she said that they were thinking about trying to get more scientists into the classrooms and wondered if I knew of anybody who wanted to do that. So I said I would go back to the campus and send out an email message in my department and just see if anyone was interested in doing that. This must have been seven or eight years ago, I guess. And we started with a group of about 12 volunteers. Uh, We met in a seminar room in the chemistry department, and I think it was probably one of the original organizers. It was probably Ann Jennings who came over and gave a short talk about what CRS was all about and what they wanted to do to organize this program. It's not a very simple thing. You you not only need to have good contacts with the teachers, but uh, you can't just throw people into the classroom directly. You've got to give them some training and, you know, get them to understand what um, what's age appropriate, especially for the classes we were targeting, which were grades three to five. So we started with those 12 people, and they basically at that time put together their own presentations. And one of the interesting things about this program is that the graduate student volunteers actually come up with their own presentations. It mostly isn't canned presentations that they get some from somewhere else. And they've come with come up with some extremely creative stuff. Um, they're teaching kids at this level things that I personally, you know, are really relatively sophisticated. And I personally never thought that you'd be able to, you know, sort of do this with people at that age. But that was reasonably successful. And it's really been the graduate student volunteers who've done most of the recruiting. So it started out in the chemistry department, and these twelve original people began to kind of you know, dragoon their friends into doing this. And so it grew from 12 to 20 to 40 to 50. And then they began to attract and talk to some people in other departments. 
And then we reached a point where we thought that maybe there was a slightly different way that we could do this. They came up with the idea that maybe instead of doing this on an individual basis, we could do it with teams of graduate students. You may know that, that in most science departments, graduate students are part of research groups. So there'll be one professor who directs a, you know, a bunch of graduate students, who, anywhere from, from three or four to 15 or 20 people, sometimes larger. Uh, so the idea was to now put together teams that would be localized. Each team would be localized in a particular research group. And that, and that had several advantages. One was that someone who wanted to do this didn't have to join in as kind of a lone individual. There's always a certain reticence about that. The other thing that it, I think major advantage of this change was that it, it generated some continuity so that graduate students are not here forever. At least we hope they're not. And uh, as they graduate and before they graduate, they begin to bring in new students, first-year students, who see that this program is going on and see that there are people who are interested and excited about it. And so that really is a major attraction for people to sign up. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We are talking with Relitsa Zikatanova, Professor Bob Bergman, and Miriam Bowring about their work with Community Resources for Science. Yeah, I would say that one of the other things that I worried about when we started this program was what, what the response was going to be from the research directors, the professors that these graduate students were working with, okay? Because, you know, you, you could envision um, somebody giving these kids a hard time because, you know, they should be in the lab doing research and here they are out uh, you know, doing presentations in the local schools. I've seen my role as trying to, at least in the chemistry department, keep the faculty informed about what's going on. So right from the beginning when we started this, uh, I, you know, got up at several meetings. My chemistry department faculty meets once a week. And I gave several very short presentations telling people that graduate students were going to be doing this and that we hoped that everybody would be supportive of it because we thought it was not only good for them educationally, but it was a real service to the community. One of the things that, that actually made this thing go much more smoothly than I might have thought is that a lot of people are supported, their research is supported by the National Science Foundation at Berkeley. And the National Science Foundation has actually required as part of their proposals something called a statement of broader impacts. And one of those broader impacts that you can put into your proposals is something about how people in your research group might be you know, reaching out to the local community. So I think as time went on, people began to view this not so much as an incursion as a favor to them because they could easily then put in their proposals the fact that their students were involved in this, these activities. And I think that really was one of the things that, that made it a lot less of a problem to, to do this in many research groups around the, around the campus. What is the teaching philosophy you apply to building your lesson plans? There's a lot of you know, ambiguities about the research that's been done in educating people. One thing comes through extremely clearly, and that is the two general ways that you can think of for educating people, and this is really true at any level, including the college level, are to stand up in front of them and just talk at them. And the other is get people involved in doing things. Have them actually do hands-on stuff. 
when the two founders started this, they knew that that kind of research had been done. And so they started from the beginning making it clear to people that they were not – the volunteers, I mean, that they were not going to go in the classroom and just lecture, okay, just write things on the board and tell people stuff because certainly at grades three to five and – Probably at even higher grades, you're going to lose people after about the first three minutes when you do that. So the the goal right from the beginning was to go in with presentations that involved having the kids do stuff with their own hands. And that's been something that we've stuck with really, I think, quite religiously since the beginning. Definitely all lessons are expected to be hands-on, minds-on, inquiry style work and Bob mentioned that the typical way you get a scientist in a classroom is someone's mom or dad comes in. And also typically what you get is someone stands at the front and maybe doesn't talk, but maybe just blows something up up there, which is fun for everyone. But <laughs> it's it's really great to go in there and gives the kids equipment to play with and let them start figuring things out themselves and and be able to guide them. I think it's also interesting to see the way we're able to even help educate teachers a little bit about how science works. So I've seen some really amazing teachers through this program, but you know, none of them are scientists and a lot of them don't really understand basically what it takes to be a scientist. So at the end, we usually give a few minutes to talk about any questions the teacher or students might have and the teachers say, well, what does it take to be a scientist? Um, And we might say, well, just keep observing the world around you, stay curious, play with things. And the teacher says, so what they meant to say was study hard. And no, no, that's not it. You've got to uh, be able to nurture that natural curiosity kids have. So I think that's a big part of what we do is go in there and kill some myths about what it takes to be a scientist. The great thing about the graduate students that go in is they shatter stereotypes about scientists for the children. What do you see clip art style in your head when someone says scientist, right? That's not what ends up in their classroom. And that's really beautiful to see them kind of taken aback by that when scientists first go in. You know, young, and most of our volunteers are female, actually, which is another great plus and young female scientists doing things that kids didn't think was science. Yeah, I think that it just turns out that graduate students are almost the ideal place in people's times of life to do this. They have a bit more time flexibility. They still are still working very hard on their research, but, you know, it's not, you know, okay, you have to be here at 8 o'clock in the morning, you have to leave at 5, you know, the way you would in, in a corporation setting. They're not overwhelmed with classes, at least not after the first couple of semesters, so they have some flexibility in in that regard. And there's reasonable support from the institution. I I think that's a big issue that the the campus and, you know, and uh, as I said, uh, to a large extent, uh, you know, people's research advisors have really provided a lot of at least moral support for this. And so it, it really makes graduate students almost ideal. I think what Relitz has said about, you know, shattering these stereotypes is also it's been a really interesting sort of eye-opener for me. It really is true that these kids have a very different stereotype about what scientists are from what they see coming in the classrooms. And having people who they see almost as kind of 
corresponding to you know to a big sister or a cousin or you know somebody that you know they really can relate to i think has had a big effect and i mean having people at you know sort of the student time of their lives when they're still young enough to be to be seen as young people by the kids in the classrooms has i think been an important facet of this You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We are talking with Relitza Zikatanova, Professor Bob Bergman, and Miriam Bowring about their work with Community Resources for Science. How do you assess the impact your presentations have on students? Um, you know, you put your finger on one of the stickiest issues with respect to all of this kind of thing, with, you know, respect to education in general, which is not only how do you find out if it works, but how do you define what works and, you know, whether something works and what doesn't. I think what all of us would like to do in a most perfect world is is actually track the people who experience these presentations and see what difference it makes in their lives, Okay. So this is a big deal, right? Because if you know anything about research in general and educational research specifically, it's not enough to just track the people who have had this experience. You've got to have a control group of people who haven't had the experience, right? And then you've got to track two groups. And, you know, in some ways it's it's like having a drug that's really effective. There's a real moral question as to whether it's okay to keep a control group that isn't doesn't have access to this stuff, right? But assuming you can do that, um, it would require way more resources than we have to track people, let's say, to the point where they've applied to college, right? Or even to the point where they've gone through college to see how successful they've been once they've been in that environment. What we hope and what we sort of believe deep in our hearts, completely intuitively, is that people who have these experiences will do better later in their educational lives. But Proving that in a scientifically respectable way is a major undertaking, and it's one that we really don't have resources for by any means right now. So, you know, we're pretty much working under the the faith, I guess, that exposing people to this sort of thing will really make them more interested in science. So we really believe quite strongly that a a major impact of this uh, is not just you know, generating people who, who might turn out to be scientists, although we certainly hope that would be one of the things that, that happens. But we'd really like to educate the general public on scientific issues, how science is done and why it's exciting and the meaning of many scientific investigations is. And we hope that by catching people, catching, you know, kids early and doing this uh, really will have a lasting effect best we can do is get feedback from the people involved in the program and see whether they like it. And if they like it and they feel it's been successful and they are at the point at which they're experiencing these presentations, if they're excited about what we're doing, that's what we're going with. This is the great thing about Community Resources for Science. There's a staff there who are experts in 
science education. So I sent my lesson plan draft to Heidi Williamson, who coordinates the BASIS program, and she read it. She gave me a long email with lots of suggestions of various levels of detail, and I worked them in, and I continue to develop as now my team members are giving me feedback, and so are the teachers. So the lessons really do get improved over time from that first draft. It's not it's not just any graduate student can make something up and uh, go in and hope the kids learn something. There really is some accountability. Are there any interesting stories that any of you have that you want to share about classroom experiences with, with the program? My favorite moments in there are when kids really put stuff together themselves, when they hear what we've told them and they make their observations and then they just come up with something good, uh, their own theory for why a water drop looks different from an oil drop and it really makes sense, or why uh, you can get a piece of pencil lead to float on water if it's horizontal but not vertical and when they can explain that themselves after making the observations it's just it's incredibly high ventilation rates if you're not right under the ducts but they actually aren't accomplishing anything in terms of air quality so that's my plug i guess for people to pay attention and think about their environments sam borgeson thanks for being on spectrum oh it's my pleasure thanks for having me see an example of data visualization, check out the official campus dashboard at the website mypower.berkeley.edu. A regular feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next few weeks. Rick Karneski and Lisa Katovich with the calendar. On Saturday, December 1st, Wonderfest is putting on a special event called End of Days. Does Hollywood get Doomsday right? Planetary scientist Chris McKay will discuss this topic as he introduces a special screening of Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, starring Steve Carell and Kara Knightley. Popcorn is free and a no-host drink and candy bar will be there. Tickets are tax-deductible and benefit Wonderfest and Variety Children's Charity of Northern California. They must be purchased in advance for $25. Visit wonderfest.org for more info. The annual fall meeting of the American Geophysical Union is the first week of December at the Moscone Center. Each year, they have a public lecture that is free and open to the public. This year, that talk is on Sunday, December 2nd, from noon to 1, in Moscone South, room 102. Lead scientist for the Mars Exploration Program, Michael Meyer, program scientist for the Mars Science Laboratory, John Gratzing, and participating scientist on the Mars Science Laboratory, Rebecca Williams, will discuss curiosity-driven Mars exploration. Curiosity is the most sophisticated explorer ever sent to another planet, and the trio will talk about its latest activities, a full-sized inflatable model of the rover, and hands-on activities for families will follow the lecture. For more information, Visit agu.org. On Tuesday, December 4th at 7 p.m. at the California Academy of Science in Golden Gate Park, San Francisco, Mary Ellen Hannibal will present the Pritzker Lecture, The Spine of the Continent, 
Her book about one of the single most ambitious conservation efforts ever undertaken to create linked protected areas extending from the Yukon to Mexico, the entire length of North America. This movement is the brainchild of Michael Sewell, the founder of Conservation Biology. E.O. Wilson calls it the most important conservation initiative in the world today. In this fascinating presentation, Mary Ellen Hannibal takes us on a tour of her travels down the length of the North American spine, sharing stories and anecdotes about the passionate, idiosyncratic people she meets along the way and the species they love. Reservations are required and seating is limited. Go to the California Academy of Science website for tickets. Now three news stories, and I'm joined by Rick Karneski and Lisa Katowicz. The November 29th issue of Nature has an article discussing a massive black hole in the tiny galaxy NGC 1277, one of the galaxies in the cluster that is the constellation Perseus. To the best of our astronomical knowledge, almost every galaxy should contain in its central region what is called a supermassive black hole. Past studies have shown that the mass of the black hole typically accounts for about a tenth of a percent of the mass of its home galaxy. But Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg researchers note that the black hole has a mass equivalent of 17 billion suns, but the galaxy is only a quarter of the Milky Way's diameter. These observations, made with the Hubble Space Telescope and the Hobby Eberly Telescope, show that the black hole accounts for almost 14% of the galaxy's mass. Past Spectrum guest Nicholas McConnell published a paper last year that holds the current record for the largest black hole, which is between 6 and 37 billion solar masses. So the black hole in NGC 1277 may or may not top this record. The journal Nature Geoscience reports this week that the shells of marine snails, known as pteropods, living in the seas around Antarctica, are being dissolved by ocean acidification. These tiny animals are a valuable food source for fish and birds and play an important role in the oceanic carbon cycle. During a science cruise in 2008, researchers from British Antarctic Survey and the University of East Anglia, in collaboration with colleagues from the U.S. Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and NOAA, discovered severe dissolution of the shells of living pteropods in southern ocean waters. The team examined an area of upwelling where winds cause cold water to be pushed upwards from the deep to the surface of the ocean. Upwell water is usually more corrosive to a particular type of calcium carbonate or aragonite that pteropods use to build their shells. The team found that as a result of the additional influence of ocean acidification, this corrosive water severely dissolved the shells of pteropods. Co-author and science cruise leader Dr. Geraint Tarling says... As one of only a few oceanic creatures that build their shells out of ergonite in the polar regions, pteropods are an important food source for fish and birds as well as a good indicator of ecosystem health. The tiny snails do not necessarily die as a result of their shells dissolving. However, it may increase their vulnerability to predation and infection, consequently having an impact to other parts of the food web. Ocean acidification is caused by the uptake of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere emitted as a result of fossil fuel burning. The finding supports predictions that the impact of ocean acidification on marine ecosystems and food webs may be significant. Science Daily reports that dozens of climate scientists have reconciled their measurements of ice sheet changes 
in Antarctica and Greenland over the past two decades. The results, published November 29th in the journal Science, roughly halve the uncertainty and discard some conflicting observations. The effort, led by Andrew Shepard at the University of Leeds in the UK, reconciles three existing ways to measure losses. The first method takes an accounting approach, combining climate models and observations to tally up the gain or loss. Two other methods use special satellites to precisely measure the height and gravitational pull of the ice sheets to calculate how much ice is present. Each method has strengths and weaknesses. Until now, scientists using each method released estimates independent from the others. This is the first time they have all compared their methods for the same times and locations. Understanding ice sheets is central to modeling global climate and predicting sea level rise. Even tiny changes to sea level, when added over an entire ocean, can have substantial effects on storm surges and flooding in coastal and island communities. The music heard during the show is by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available by a Creative Commons license 3.0 attribution. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. <laughs>